You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. If you've got your Bibles open to Genesis 14, I want to turn your attention back to verse 17. It says, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then that's all we hear in this narrative about Melchizedek. It's the only historical information that we have about him in the narrative account. And if this was all that the Bible dealt with regarding Melchizedek, we would be moving right on to chapter 15. But it's because of other passages that refer back to this account that we spend a whole Sunday devoted to understanding the reasoning behind this account of Melchizedek. And what we're going to see is that God, I believe, put this account, because there were other there were other things that Abram did. There were other interactions that he would have had that aren't included in Scripture for us. This one was chosen for a specific reason, a very specific reason that would not really come into play until thousands of years later. And I want to show you the reason that this story is included in Scripture and how it serves us today. But it's the it's the other passages in Scripture that that cause us to pause here. Psalm chapter 100 is, is the first passage that we look at. Psalm chapter 100 is a messianic psalm, meaning that what's being talked about points us to the Messiah and his come, uh, his first coming and his second coming. It says in verse one, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Um, yeah. Know that the Lord, he is God. No, this is the wrong. This is the wrong one. It's a great psalm. This is why we appreciate um, technology. I can find the right one real quick. Psalm one ten. Psalm one ten verse uh, four is where we'll get to. All right, Psalm 110. This is a messianic psalm. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be the dew of their of your youth will be yours. The Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so this is special revelation coming to David. He's writing, uh, he's writing about a, a greater David to come, a greater one to come, the Messiah in the future. And he references this priestly order of Melchizedek. Now, this is special revelation to David because I would venture to say David didn't really understand what the priesthood of Melchizedek even was. Because up to this point, the only reference to him in Scripture is is what we have contained for us in Genesis 14. But there's a reference here that ties this Melchizedek figure to the coming Messiah. At the beginning of this psalm where it talks about the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That section right there is referenced in Matthew 22, 44, Luke 20, 41 through 44, and then also in Acts 2. That portion of the psalm is referenced by Jesus and others, and it's connected with Jesus being the Messiah and the fulfillment of this prophecy. So we can assume that the rest of the chapter is also meant to point us to the Messiah as well. So that's in Matthew 22, Luke 20, and then Acts chapter 2. All three of those chapters, the authors there are talking about this psalm pointing to Jesus Christ. And then when we skip ahead to the book of Hebrews... The author of Hebrews relies on this historical account of Melchizedek to make several points throughout his writings. And in Hebrews chapter 5, it says in verse 5, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. 
as he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayer and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. We skip to Hebrews chapter six. This is another passage where Melchizedek is referenced. It says, uh, we'll start in verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then we get a lengthy discussion about Melchizedek in Hebrews chapter 7. So I want to turn your attention there now. Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to read through this uh, chapter together because it sets the stage for everything that I want to share with you this morning. It says in Hebrews chapter 7, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. Okay, that's the, that's the narrative account that we looked at last week. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. You remember last week we talked about Melchizedek meaning king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. We talked about that as well last week. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is from their brothers, Though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are priests forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because its weakness and uselessness for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn. This is that reference to Psalm 110 and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The, the order of Melchizedek, the reference here in Genesis, meant to point us, meant to point us to something greater. Our summary sentence for this morning uh, reminds us of the purpose of this passage and, and why it's worthy of our discussion and attention this morning. God firmly establishes the presence of Melchizedek in the past in order to rightly establish Christ as the superior priest in the present that brings eternal righteousness and peace to his people. We're presented with this personhood of Melchizedek. We're presented with him as being a priest. And it's for an intentional purpose to show that Jesus is the superior priest to the Jewish people. That the Jewish people needed to wrap their minds around the fact that one who was greater than Aaron and every Levitical priest that descended from Aaron was now on the scene. And his priestly functions far superseded anything that these Israelite priests had been able to accomplish. God firmly established the presence of Melchizedek in the past in order to rightly establish Christ as the superior priest in the present that brings eternal righteousness and peace to his people. As you're copying that down, just some initial things that I jotted down. This is the first mention of a priest in Scripture. It's the first mention of a priest in Scripture. And as I've said, I believe that this little blurb, this chapter that, that seemingly is inserted into uh, two chapters that are discussing the covenant and the promises made to Abram, this, this random narrative gets inserted here with kings and a battle and Lot being kidnapped and Abram rescuing him. What is the purpose of this? This blurb here is included, I believe, in preparation for Hebrews. I believe that God, in the same way he, he creates marriage, he creates marriage at the very beginning of time, and then in the book of, of Ephesians we find out this is a picture to help us understand the relationship of Christ to the church. This is why we have marriage, so that we can better understand the relationship of Christ to the church. I believe that, that God, in his sovereign wisdom, said, we need Melchizedek, and we need him right here in the book of Genesis. When everything's unfolding with Abraham, because whoever wrote the, the, the book of Hebrews, probably Apollos, okay, probably Apollos, the guy in Acts that's competent in Scripture, most likely, I believe he wrote the book of Hebrews. But the author of Hebrews, who, who remains unknown, okay, he needed Melchizedek. He needed Melchizedek to drive home his point to the Israelite people. That Jesus is the fulfillment of Judaism. That everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. You'll remember Jesus has a similar conversation on, on the road to Emmaus with, this, with the guys um, after his resurrection. And it says, the Bible says that he, that he opened up the scriptures and showed them everything in the Old Testament pointed to him. I believe that God said the author of Hebrews is going to need this figure, Melchizedek, to really drive home his point. That Jesus is the Messiah. That Jesus answers all the questions that were left wondering in the Old Testament. We have limited information about Melchizedek. And I think, uh, just as a side note, it's, it's worth mentioning. Back in Hebrews chapter 5, when he first mentions Melchizedek, or, or in, the midst, in the midst of mentioning Melchizedek, he says in verse 10, being designated by God, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 11, about this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Often in studying this wondered, is there, is there more that we could have gleaned about Melchizedek if the people that the author was writing to had been able to understand it? The author kind of inserts this here and says, I really would like to spend two or three weeks on Melchizedek. 
But you guys are too spiritually dumb to understand it because you've dropped the ball. You should be teachers now. You should be ready to inherit this from me. I ought to be able to pass this on to you. But because of your spiritual state, I'm giving you milk instead of meat. Now, thankfully, he comes back to Melchizedek and unloads some more about him. But I wonder, was there more that the author of Hebrews understood that could have been passed along had these people been responsible spiritually to where they could have received it? I think there's another thing that limits us in our information in that I believe the Holy Spirit wants to leave Melchizedek in kind of a veiled state. I think we're meant to not have all the information about Melchizedek because I think the ultimate purpose of Melchizedek is to point us to Jesus. Melchizedek's not the hero of the story. And as we'll see shortly, I don't believe that Melchizedek is Jesus. Okay, I think he's a historical figure that is a type that points us to Jesus. And I think he remains veiled for a purpose. I think he comes on the scene and comes off the scene. And a lot of times we even just forget about him. Because he's not a focal point of the, of the, of the story. Uh, but he is important. Um, I, and I couldn't, and this is another random analogy, I couldn't help but think as I was studying this, he's kind of like, if you've, if you've watched the Lord of the Rings movies, he's kind of like that weird lady that kind of comes on the scene, and when she's on the scene, like Gandalf's real enamored with her and thinks that she's a more powerful wizard than he is. It's, it's, she's an elf uh, queen or something. But you never really see where she lives. You don't really know what she's doing and why she's not more involved in the story. And then she just kind of comes and goes. That's Melchizedek. He's the male version of that. Okay. He shows up on the scene. He's the king of Salem. He's a king of righteousness. He's after the, he's the, the priest of the most high God. And then he just kind of disappears again. He shows up and all this grandeur comes out with a banquet to welcome Abram home. And then as soon as he shows up, he's gone. He disappears and he's served his purpose. He served his purpose. He's a historical man who showed up. The children of Israel knew who he was, could reference him. And when the author of Hebrews writes about him, they know exactly who he's talking about. And the point that gets driven home is able to be driven home because Melchizedek and the historical account of him is preserved for us in Scripture. Both this concept of righteousness and peace points us to Jesus Christ and I think even in the, the narrative in Genesis 14 where it talks about him bringing out bread and wine, even those two concepts remind us of the righteousness and peace that's extended to us by Jesus, right? When we think about the bread and wine, we naturally think of the Lord's Supper. And both represent righteousness and peace, right? The bread is the perfect life of Jesus Christ, the righteousness that's made available to us. The wine represents the blood that was shed that gives us peace with God. Okay, so everything that's happening there points us to Jesus, his identity. Who, who, who is Melchizedek? There's several different options out there, and we're going to skip the weird ones that say that he is um, an alien from another planet that was the unfallen Adam that came to observe Abram. No, no, he's not that guy. Okay. Um, option one is that he's Shem. Okay. There's, there's a lot of scholars that believe this is actually Noah's son, Shem. Okay. And it's possible because if there's no gaps in the genealogies, we've already said that there are guys that live longer than we think about because the narrative just kind of unfolds and we just assume everybody's dead when Abram comes on the scene. Shem actually lives longer than Abram, okay, 35 years longer. So Abram dies and Shem's still hanging out after being rescued from the flood, okay? So it's possible, but there's really no textual evidence for this, Okay. Um, and I'll, and I'll tell you why people want to jump on board with calling him Shem here in just a second. Option number two is that he's a godly human priest king that serves as a type. That he's a godly human priest king, he's called both, that serves as a type. Now what do we mean by type? A type is in reference to an Old Testament person or an Old Testament practice, or a ceremony that has an antitype in the New Testament, meaning that it prefigures something greater, something perfect, something eternal that's to come. All right, Tyson posted the video um, on, our, on the city talking about the, the bronze serpent that was raised up in the Old Testament, right? That, that the Israelites got bitten by the fiery serpents. He, he creates a bronze serpent, and God says, everybody that looks at the bronze serpent will be saved. 
the bronze serpent functions as a type of Christ, right? Jesus calls it that. He says, just like Moses raised up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. Okay. In the same way they had to look to the bronze serpent to be saved from the fiery serpents. Mankind has to look to Christ on the cross to be saved from sin. Okay. So that's a type. So calling Melchizedek a type, he's an old Testament person, a real thing that happened, but he pointed to something greater. Okay. The, the difficulties with this view is how do we get a king in Canaan that's godly? Right. We, we said that Abram kind of comes on the scene here and everybody's worshiping other gods and it's evil and it's wicked and Sodom's over here and it's real nasty. And yet we have this guy that's supposedly the king of Salem and he's a God worshiper and he's the priest of God. It doesn't seem to mesh with the culture that we've been talking about. OK, in addition to that, if he is so great and the author of Hebrews seven says he's he's superior to Abram, why was he not chosen to be the father of a great nation? Why don't we know more about this great man who Abram pays, pays tithes to? So that's some of the, the, the questioning about if he's a real man who, who was born and died, why don't we know more about him if he's so great? Which then would lead to the third option that a lot of people hold to, that it's, it's a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Something similar to what we see in the fiery furnace when you got Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and then they say one that looks like the son of man who's walking around in there with them. Son of God. Okay. A Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, which explains why he shows up on the scene and then disappears. And there's no other discussion about him. So Shem, a godly human priest king that serves as a type or a Christophany. Now, the reason that, um, that I kind of, and what I will tell you right now is it really doesn't matter. I don't think it matters one iota who he actually is. Because I think if it did matter, scripture would just blatantly tell us that he was Jesus or he was Shem or he was just a human priest king. I really don't think it matters. So we could all just come up with our own theories of who he is. And at the end of the day, we can't miss the fact that whoever he is, is pointing us to Jesus being better than every other priest. And he's really only on the scene to establish what's called the priestly order of Melchizedek. And we're going to see why that's important. Okay, so he and who he is, his identity really doesn't factor into the spiritual truths of Hebrews 7. What the author simply needs to be true is that there was a Melchizedek on the scene who was a priest. Because it has everything to do with Jesus being a priest. Okay, Um and it's because there's so much comparison between Jesus and Melchizedek that lends me to say that, that they're two distinct entities, that they're not the same person. Okay? Um, why, why are we even talking about, um, this is the first point, but why are we even talking about priesthood? Like, why is that even a point of discussion? We know that um, in the New Testament, it, we're, we're, we're referred to as the priesthood of believers. So, so why is it even important to think of Jesus as a priest? Okay? A couple of things. What we see in the Old Testament and how God reveals salvation and the need for salvation is that ultimately man needs to be saved from God. We talk about our need to be saved from sin, but ultimately it's a it's a greater need to be saved from God and his wrath. Okay, so so God is wrathful towards sin and ultimately we need to be saved from God. Now, the goodness of God lends him to create a way for us to be saved from his wrath. And the biblical answer, the biblical answer to being saved from God's wrath is priesthood. That's what we see in the Old Testament. God establishes priests and the sacrificial system so that he can overlook sins, knowing that eventually the sacrifice would come that could absorb his wrath appropriately. Okay, so the biblical answer to God's wrath is priesthood. And he, and he presents this answer to the children of Israel. The function of the priest is to intercede on behalf of man. The priest is a bridge builder. Okay, a bridge builder. Now, we believe at this church that we no longer need a physical man to function in this capacity. Now, there are other churches, other denominations that would still 
elevate this position within the church and say that we go through a priest as an interceder to God. We believe that that has been torn down, that that is no longer needed. That when Christ died on the cross, the veil was split open, rendering that office no longer needed. That we have full access to the throne of God now. Okay? Jesus is our priest. He is our human priest. He is our godly priest. Okay? As the God-man, he functions in that capacity far better than any other priest could. Far better than Melchizedek could. Okay? Um... So, so the biblical answer to our salvation is priesthood, and, and God brings in the, the deficient priesthood of Aaron to create a longing in the children of Israel for a faithful high priest who intercedes forever. See, in, in Israel, with the Levitical priesthood that was established through Aaron, you became a priest because of your genealogy. Not so much based on qualification. Okay, so we talk about elders in the church. They have to be qualified to lead. As Levitical priests, you just had to be born into the family and you could be elevated to that position irregardless of character. So at times you had some duds serving as priests in Israel because they could rightfully claim the position because of their genealogy. But character-wise, we would never want them in that position. It created a longing in Israel that we need a better priest. And then when you had a good priest and then he died, there was this gaping hole where you said, we need somebody that can keep living. Somebody who can keep interceding for us. We don't want to be in a situation where we have to keep offering sacrifices every year. We also don't want to be in a situation where we have to get to know a new priest constantly because of his death. So the answer was priesthood. But the answer was insufficient in that the priest never could live up to what the people needed them to be. Okay? He, the author of Hebrews is going to draw that out for us. Okay? So from a Christological standpoint, okay, the study of Christ, if we're thinking about this from a Christology standpoint, what does Melchizedek teach us about our interaction with Jesus? First of all, he teaches us uh, that Christ has a rightful claim as priest. He has a rightful claim as priest. In our passage here in Hebrews 7, as we were reading through it, hopefully you picked up on there are several times when the author talks about Jesus not being a descendant of Aaron. Right? He's tied to the line of Judah. So Jesus has no genealogical claim on the priesthood. He can't call himself a priest like other people in Israel could. Because he doesn't descend from Aaron. And the author of Hebrews highlights that for us. He says, he's not from Aaron. He doesn't have a law that gives him the right to call himself priest. Instead, his claim to priesthood comes from the priesthood of Melchizedek. The priesthood of Melchizedek is established. It's established by God appointing him to that position. Okay. No genealogy needed. And that's really the point where it says that he has no genealogy. Okay, a lot of people want to take that and say, well, he has to be Jesus. The begin- he has no beginning, no end. The fact is, is that his genealogy is not given to us in Genesis. And I think the Holy Spirit did that intentionally as well. Remember, we've been reading through Genesis and we get a lot of genealogies in Genesis. A lot of family trees. Nothing about Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God. He most likely descended from somebody with Shem or or, or someone from Noah, and we could have traced him back. No indication of who he is. Why? Because his claim to being a priest had nothing to do with his family. In the same way that Jesus' claim to priesthood has nothing to do with him coming from Aaron. It's an appointment by God. Now, if you're an Israelite, if if you're a Jew, and you're reading this chapter, let's just pretend that Melchizedek had never existed. Okay, and you're reading through this and 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 I'm trying to convince you that Jesus is God's promised king and priest. And we start talking about Jesus, your immediate reaction would be he's from the tribe of Judah, not the tribe of Levi. He cannot be a priest. And then I want to come on and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. But God's making an exception here. He is going to appoint him priest, even though he doesn't come from the line of the priest. The Jews would say, no, that's that is ridiculous. That's not how God functions. That's not how God works. He's told us that the priests come from the Levitical line. 
See, this guy is needed because the author of Hebrews can say, this is being done. God is appointing him priest, and he's done this before. See, the Jew valued Melchizedek. They thought he was this great guy. Like he was included in their history. Like they would talk about him. They, they, they longed to know more about him. So when the author of Hebrews says, Jesus is a better priest than Aaron, and he can claim this priestly role because God has appointed him to it. And before you lose your mind on this, he's done it before this way. This guy, Melchizedek, he too did not come from Aaron, and he's called the priest of the Most High God. And so this is totally appropriate for God to do this because he's done it previously. See, in all God's wisdom, this chapter 14 in Genesis seems kind of weird. Like, why, why this story? Why now? Because it was needed thousands of years later when the author of Hebrews was writing to the descendants of Abraham and trying to get them to understand they had killed the Messiah. They had killed their priest king that they had been longing for. And to help connect all the pieces, to help connect all the pieces, he draws upon Melchizedek and says, Jesus is a priest, not like you've previously known. He's better than those priests. And he's a rightful priest because he's from the order of Melchizedek. This group of priests that God simply appoints. Appoints based on character, appoints based on his will, not based on genealogy. And that's why the genealogy or lack thereof of Melchizedek is emphasized so much in this passage. Because he doesn't have a rightful claim to be priest. His only claim to be a priest is because God made him the priest of the Most High God. And Jesus' claim of priesthood is based on his father giving him that role, appointing him to that position. That's the point of what the the author is trying to drive home here in Hebrews chapter 7. Had there not been a precedent, Israel would have never bought into this line of thinking. This account was designed as a witness to Israel. He has a rightful claim. But secondly, Christ is a better priest than Aaron. He's a better priest than Aaron. Verse 4 of Hebrews 7, see how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is from their brothers. Though these are also descended from Abraham, but this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself who receives tithes paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestors when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? There's some reasons that Christ is considered to be better than Aaron as a priest. There were some limitations to Aaron's priesthood. And if we were to go back and read through Hebrews chapter 7, we could I could show you specifically where these fall. But kind of grouping them all together, the limitations of Aaron's priesthood. What we find here in Hebrews 7 is that his priesthood was tied to a national understanding. Meaning that when, when Melchizedek shows up, he says, I'm the priest of the Most High God. Aaron shows up and says, I'm the priest of God for Israel. Okay, His priesthood was tied to the Israelite nation. Other nations did not come to Aaron and his descendants looking for him to intercede for them on behalf uh, on behalf of them to God. He was the Israelite priest. He was confined to a national understanding. Okay? He was a national priest for Israel. Secondly, what we find here in the book of Hebrews is that he was subject to a king. What we learn is that in Israel, kings and priests were never the same person. Never the same person. Okay? So Aaron would have been subjected to, or Aaron's descendants, the Levitical priesthood would have been subjected to a king. There was no permanent righteousness being offered by these priests. Okay? They would, they would offer sacrifices, but you had to come back and continually have sacrifices offered on your behalf. No permanent righteousness. It was a hereditary position. It got passed down to somebody because of genealogy. And it was also limited by time. 
Hebrews 7 says that these guys continually died off. And even if they didn't die off, they were limited to 30 years serving in the office. So again, even if he had a great one that lived long enough, after 30 years, he was removed from the position and someone else was placed there. So there was a limitation placed upon Aaron's priesthood. It was for Israel. It didn't offer long-term righteousness. It was passed down by genealogy, which meant you got some good and some bad. It was limited by time. These guys would die off or be unseated by someone else. A limited priesthood. Whereas the superiority of Melchizedek's priesthood is also communicated. He's a universal priest. He's the priest of the most high God. How do we know that? Because Abraham shows up and pays him tithes. Okay. The, the passage in Hebrews says that the Levitical priest could claim tithes from their brothers, from their brethren because of the law. This guy, Melchizedek, to our understanding, has no relational ties to Abram. Abram shows up, acknowledges him as a priest, gives him honor as a priest, and tithes to him as a priest. He's a universal, he's a universal priest. We're reminded of this importance, and this should really ring for us because we're not Jewish people, right? We need him to be a universal priest and not just for the Jewish people. First John 2, 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, talking to a Jewish audience, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Right? We get grafted into the truths of Scripture. It's not just for Abram's physical descendants. Those that are of faith are Abram's true descendants. Okay? The order of Melchizedek communicates a universal, a universal priesthood. It's a royal priesthood. Melchizedek is both king and priest. Jesus is both king and priest. He rules and he intercedes for us. He's appointed. No genealogy. It's based on character. God appoints him to this position. And it's an eternal position. It's an eternal position. Right? Jesus continues as our intercessor. Now, I believe Melchizedek died at some point. Because I don't believe he was Jesus. And I don't believe he's still living. Okay, we 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 refer to him as an eternal priest because we don't have any documented ending to his story. Going back to that uh, um, Lord of the Rings, we don't really know what happens to that veiled lady that just kind of comes and goes. Right. She's in The Hobbit, too, I think. She just kind of comes and goes. And you're just like, what is what is she doing? Melchizedek comes on the scene and then he's just gone. He just disappears. We don't we don't see anything else about him. What happened to him? We don't know. Is he still alive? Who knows? Right. Like we just we just don't know anything about him. And so the, the, the Holy Spirit has Moses write Genesis in such a way that he stays kind of veiled and, and in the background so that he serves as a as an appropriate type. Because there doesn't seem to be an end to Melchizedek's priesthood. We don't know anybody that takes over after him. Right. We can see a, a lineage of kings when we go to the book of Chronicles. We can see who was king and then who was king and then who was king. We don't know if anybody served after Melchizedek. We don't need to know. We just know that Jesus was appointed to that position, just like Melchizedek had been appointed to that position. Let's look at some specifics as, how he, as to how he's better than Aaron. He combines the offices of king and priest, which was previously not allowed. Let me give you some incident, incidences where Israelite kings tried to combine the position. In 1 Samuel chapter 10... Paul's or uh, Saul's downfall here. First Samuel ten twenty five. Um, let's see here. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his own home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah and with, uh, went with men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellow said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. So he's, he's brought to the position of, um, of king. And then you'll remember he tries to, he tries to make sacrifices and then Samuel has to rebuke him for it. That it wasn't okay for him to function in that capacity. And Samuel had laid out the rules there. It says that he laid out the obligations of him being king. And then he tries to oversee that or supersede that and function as a priest. And Samuel has to rebuke him. If we skip ahead to Second Chronicles. In chapter 26. 
Talking about Uzziah, it says, But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction, for he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor, and they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests the sons of Aaron who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary for you have done wrong and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense and when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah the chief priest and all the priests looked at him and behold, he was leprous in his forehead. And they rushed him out quickly and he himself hurried to go out because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death and being a leper lived in a separate house for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. And Jotham his son was over the king's household governing the people of the land. This was not allowed in Israel. You couldn't function as both. You couldn't function as both. But what there was given to Israel was a prophecy, a prophecy of an individual who would unite the roles. In Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Very similar to the title given to Melchizedek. But it calls him a branch of David. Okay, he'll reign as a king. But if we skip to Zechariah. This is where the priesthood connection comes. Zechariah chapter six. Verse 12 and 13 and say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch for he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. Righteousness, peace, a king, a priest coming together. One individual serving in both roles. This was a, a longing, a desire in Israel. See, God had set it up to where there was a check and balance there in the authority and leadership of Israel. If you gave one person too much power and you got a bad guy in the position, then it was devastating. So God very, uh, very kindly kept that separated. But if you have the right position in, a, in, in the right person in the position, then you absolutely want them to have both. You want your king to be the one that intercedes for you. You want your king of righteousness to also be the king of peace. Okay? And that longing was created in Israel. They were looking for one to fulfill these roles. Jesus combines the offices of king and priest, something that Aaron and his descendants never could do because they weren't from the line of Judah. Secondly, he is better than Abram, making him better than Aaron as well. All right? So he's after the priesthood of Melchizedek. And the author of Hebrews says that Melchizedek is better than Abram. Why? Because Abram, Abram gave honor to him and tithed to him. And then to connect it for the readers, he says, we can consider it as though Aaron did that as well, because he was, he was still in the loins of his father before that happened. And so kind of connecting that if, if Abram is, is not as good as uh, Melchizedek, if Melchizedek was superior to Abram, he's also superior to his descendants. Okay. He is better than Abram, making him better than Aaron as well. Melchizedek had blessed Abram. The author of Hebrews says the greater always does the blessing. He always blesses the lesser. He also received tithes from Abram, not by law like the Levitical priest, but by personal quality. Okay, so... Author of Hebrews says the Levitical priests, they were commanded to take tithes from the people and the people were commanded to give tithes to the priests. Melchizedek doesn't show up on the scene and tell Abram to tithe to him. This is something that Abram feels compelled to do based on the personhood of Melchizedek. Kind of what we see in the New Testament where we're told to give, we're told to give as the Holy Spirit compels us versus us sticking to a strict law as to how much to give. Okay, the, the author of Hebrews says the Levitical priest could claim tithes, but it was part of the law. 
There was no law in place that said Abram had to tithe to this guy. Abram just recognized the superiority of Melchizedek and gave a tenth to him. He's better than Abram. Number three, he is the perfect priest that does not need to make sacrifices for himself. Jesus, being a part of the order of Melchizedek, this appointed priest, Jesus shows up and all through Hebrews we see this mentioned. He's the perfect priest. While other priests had to offer sacrifices for themselves before they offered sacrifices for others, Jesus does not have to do this. He is the perfect sacrifice. Leviticus 16.6, talking about Aaron and his need to offer sacrifices for himself. It says in Leviticus 16.6, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall make atonement for the rest of the people. Think about it. When the priest would go into the Holy of Holies, there was always this, this wonder and question, will he come out? So you're, you're banking on this guy as your interceder, and then you're hoping that he can actually fulfill the role. Can he actually be my interceder, or is he going to die, and then his bell stop jiggling in there, and we have to, we have to pull him out, right? So they had these, these, this alarm system. Hey, we still hear him. He's still moving around in there. And then it goes silent, and you know that the priest has died. He, he's not your intercessor. He went in there to do a job for you, and he failed at the job, and they had to pull him out because he's dead. Okay? Jesus doesn't have to offer sacrifices. You don't have to wonder if his sacrifice was accepted so that then the sacrifices he offers for you can be accepted. He's the better priest. He's better than the priests that come from Aaron. Number four, he's the priest who offers the perfect sacrifice negating future sacrifices. Hebrews chapter seven again. Hebrews 7, verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. book of Hebrews goes on to unfold the fact that we don't have to offer sacrifices anymore, right? Hebrews chapter 9 uh, verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? He's the priest who offers the perfect sacrifice. Number five, he exists forever to intercede for us. And this is what the author of Hebrews draws out and why the priesthood of Jesus is so important. And why, if we're banking everything on the priesthood of Jesus, we need to feel assured that the historical Jesus can actually claim to be a priest. Okay, because look at what Hebrews 7.25 says. Consequently, he, talking about Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Our future salvation depends on Jesus's continued intercession for us. That's what's being stated here. It's not based on, on, on a decision that you made when you were younger. Okay? Your salvation is resting on Jesus continually interceding for you forever. And for him to be an intercessor for us, he has to be a priest. And the author of Hebrews is saying he is a priest. And he's better than any priest that you've really ever known. And he's from a type of priest that you only know a little bit about. 
And really, all you need to know about that guy is that God appointed him to be a priest, not because of his genealogy, but simply because God chose to do it. And he's doing the same thing with Jesus. And he's establishing him as a priest to where no priest needs to come after him because his term never ends and his life never ends. And he's the right guy for the job. And we don't have to worry about it being an eternal dud in the position. He's an eternal priest, an eternal intercessor for us. And our future salvation is dependent upon it. It says that he always lives to make intercession for them. If you, turn in, if you were to turn to Numbers 20, verse 22, and 20, uh, 22 through 29, there is a detailed explanation about Aaron's death and how he passed it to the next person. Melchizedek's death is left out because we're to wonder when, if, if, his, if his priesthood ever did end. He's a type of Jesus, a type of Jesus, and it points to Jesus' eternal state as our priest. Jesus was already functioning like this before he died. He was already functioning as a priest. He was already interceding. Look in Luke 22, verse 31, talking to Peter. Look what Jesus already functioning as a priest. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Isn't it encouraging to know that we have a priest interceding for us today And praying that our faith does not fail. Jesus is doing this for Peter here. He says, Peter, I'm praying for you. And I'm praying that your faith won't fail. And it won't fail because I'm interceding for you. And Satan wants to have you. He wants to sift you like wheat. And there's going to be some discouragement when you you deny me. But then there's going to be this restitution that happens on the beach. And you're going to be a focal point of the planting of my church. He says, I'm praying for you. I'm interceding for you. And Jesus interceded for us in John 17. You could look there and read the the priestly prayer prayer of Jesus for those that would come after he leaves this earth. These are promises that we can cling to, that he saves us forever, that he intercedes us forever. And what's so encouraging about that passage in Psalms 110, go back there real quick, Psalm 110, what's so great about this passage doesn't shed a whole lot of light just says you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek but the first part says the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind there's no changing of the mind here he is a priest he's appointed as the priest by his father and he will forever reign in that position number six he allows us to now draw near to God he now allows us to draw near to God you'll remember that the Jews were veiled from drawing too near to God They were not allowed into the Holy of Holies. They were not allowed to come near to God. But what Christ accomplishes in Hebrews 4, Hebrews 7, Hebrews 10, Hebrews 11, they all talk about it, that what Christ has accomplished now allows us to draw near to God. Because number seven, he lives in the Holy of Holies, right? The priest that came from Aaron could only go there one time a year. They were only permitted to come in there one time a year. Otherwise, they were killed. They could only come into God's presence one time a year, and then they had to sneak out. They had to sneak out, and it remained veiled, and no one else was allowed to go in there and see it. But we're told that Jesus has established his living quarters in the Holy of Holies, which far supersedes anything that a priest from the order of Aaron could do. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 through 14, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He lives in the Holy of Holies. We don't just learn about Christology type information from Melchizedek. He also teaches us about our interaction with each other. So if we're thinking of him in terms of a godly man, but a man only. He is a great testimony to us that we ought to celebrate the victories of others and give glory to God rather than desire our own glory and victory. Going back to that narrative, Abram has won a great victory. He has dominated the army that swept through like a lawnmower. His name was Cheddar Lawmer, right? Comes through like a lawnmower and just mows over everybody. 
and takes all the spoil back to where they came from. And Abram tracks them down and wins a victory and brings these people back. And this great priest of the Most High God comes out, who's also a king. And where was he in the battle? And why didn't he go after these people? He shows up and gives glory to God and blesses Abram. Doesn't try to steal anything for himself. Doesn't try to steal any glory. Doesn't show up and say, why didn't God choose me to go get those people? I'm the king of Salem. I'm the high priest of the most high God. He just shows up and says, blessed be Abram. For some reason, God decided to use him instead of me. And I'm just going to celebrate the fact that he used any of us. This is a strong reminder to the humility that's needed in us when we see someone else being used and we give glory to God for it and we celebrate the victory in their life rather than desiring our own glory and victory in the midst of it. There is no seeking to claim anything from Melchizedek. Melchizedek probably would have blushed that Hebrews 7 would be written thousands of years later about him, right? He's just this guy doing his thing, shows up and says, hey, here's another guy that God is doing things in as well. Let's celebrate this guy and let's celebrate the great God who is doing things in both of our lives. It's a reminder to us that we celebrate the victory of others rather than desiring our own victories. Secondly, we ought to keep proper perspective and humility about our own spiritual accomplishments. See, Abram doesn't just say, yes, yes, speak more to me, Melchizedek, about how great I am. No, he says, you know what? You're, you're greater than me. And Abram may have been wondering, hey, now that I know about you, why are you not the father of the nation of God? He tithes to him. He recognizes when he's in the presence of someone who is more spiritually mature than him, probably, right? Melchizedek's probably not trying to trade his wife to the Pharaoh to save his own life, right? Melchizedek's a spiritual giant to Abram. And he says, you know what? Let me acknowledge you as well. And there's mutual upbuilding that takes place here. We ought to keep proper perspective and humility about our own spiritual accomplishments. Abram serves as an example of that in the midst of his interaction. Melchizedek's a great reminder to Abram that he's not alone and his greatness should not become his focus. And then lastly here, our Christian mindset should be the mutual upbuilding of each other. And this is all through the New Testament, this mindset that Christians are to have. Romans 14, 10 or 14, 19 So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Romans 15, 2. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 19. Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. We could go on Ephesians 4.11, Ephesians 4.12, Ephesians uh, 4.29, but let's go to 1 Thessalonians 5.11. This will be the last one that we read, 1 Thessalonians 5.11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. So Melchizedek's story is there to help us see that Jesus can be a priest without the genealogy to Aaron. And the Jews would have never agreed to it, would have never bought into it if there hadn't been previous precedent for this. So I fully believe that all of this was orchestrated by God's wisdom. Let's include this story about Melchizedek. We're going to need it down the road. We're going to need it to really drive home this point to the Israelites in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is a better priest. And for all the reasons that we've said this morning, he's the better priest. He's the better priest. But then on top of that, when we go back to the story, there's so much that can be learned just about the interaction between these two men. That they cared about what God was doing in the life of the other more, more so than what he was doing about in their own life. And they wanted to highlight that in the life of someone else. And it was a mutual upbuilding that I believe served both. I believe Abram and Melchizedek are eating bread and wine and thinking, why didn't we know each other earlier in life? And how can we continue to be friends moving forward? Because I'm going to live over here. Uh, Lot's going back to his land. He picked a better land. I'm over here, not too far from you. Let's get together. Let's get together. Let's, let's continually mutually upbuild each other. And in the midst of the conversation, Melchizedek just kind of disappears in the bag. He's like, woo, gone, right? Like just gone. Like we don't ever hear from him. We don't know if they built a friendship. We don't know anything else about that potential relationship later on. He just kind of disappears and, and, and he's gone. But he doesn't leave us without some strong teaching about how we should act moving forward. All right, application. Application, because of our high priest, 
we can hold fast to our secure hope and feel freed to encourage others. Because of our high priest, we can hold fast to our secure hope and feel free, feel freed to encourage others. See, the priesthood is needed because we need somebody to intercede for us. And remember, the Israelites had to wonder, is this working or not? And so they really couldn't even think about other people. They were so worried about their own relationship to God. What we have in the book of Hebrews is assurance and confidence that it's all been worked out and that our priest is in place forever and he's interceding for us and he's torn the veil down so we have full access to God, draw near to his throne. We have that assurance and because we know Jesus is going to be priest forever, we can hold fast to these hopes and we can feel freed now to encourage other people and not have to worry about our own spiritual condition. That we're safe and we're secure and now we can we can focus on bringing other people into that security as well. It'd be interesting to hear responses if I were to ask you, what is the hope of a believer? We talk about this. We use that reference. Um, it'd be interesting to see what the responses are. We don't have time to to give you a chance to give feedback. So I'm just going to give you the answer. First, John three, two. This is our hope. First John 3, 2, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. All right. What's the hope of the believer? That we get to see Jesus, we get to be with Jesus, and we get to be like Jesus. All right, so that's your answer. The next time I ask you the the hope of a believer, we get to see him. He's coming back. We get to be with him. We've been reconciled. We've been forgiven. We've been saved. And not only do we get to see him and be with him, we actually get to be like him. We get a body that's saved from suffering and death, a time when there will be no more funerals and no more grieving, no more sin that that, that confines and, and, and constrains our relationships with each other. All that we get set free from. And because of our high priest, we can anxiously look forward to those things. We'll close with this. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And then in Hebrews 10, the author provides application for all this discussion on priesthood and Melchizedek. He wraps up his teaching in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, because of everything I've shared with you, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, that mutual upbuilding, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. God firmly established the presence of Melchizedek in the past so that he could rightfully establish Christ as the superior priest in the present. That brings eternal righteousness and peace to his people. Why? Because he's always interceding for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the depth and truth that's contained here. Father, I'm thankful that the author of Hebrews was able to. To tie in for us. The spiritual significance of this king of Salem. And God, we're thankful that you've protected us from too much information about him to where we'd want to make him the focal point this morning. And so God, we recognize that he's in the story simply to show that you at times appoint priests without their tie to a genealogy. And God, we're thankful for the assurance that it gives us that the historical Jesus who walked this earth and died on a cross and was seen by over 500 people back from the dead is not just a mere man. That he's a king. 
because of his ties to the tribe of Judah. And that he's a priest, not because he comes from Aaron, but because he comes from the order of Melchizedek, because you appointed him to that position. And Father, we rejoice this morning that, that we don't have any priest available this morning for those that need to confess. That we don't have a need for a human intercessor here in this room. That the human intercessor for us is living in the Holy of Holies right now, constantly interceding for us. And Father, we're thankful that the assurance in Romans 8 is that even when we don't know how to pray for ourselves, even when we don't know how we need to be interceded for, that our high priest knows exactly how to intercede for us. God, I pray that it would instill confidence in us this morning. That as we fail you this week, that we are reminded that our sins are forgiven. And that you serve in that position for all eternity. That your sacrifice stands for all time. And God, I pray now that as as that issue with us has been resolved, that we no longer have to wonder if we've been saved from your wrath. That it frees us now to focus on the growth of other people and their inclusion into these great truths. God, the, the big issue with us has been dealt with. Father, I pray that it would spur us on now to help the issue with others be dealt with too. That they would come to understand that Jesus is their great high priest and that he too can intercede, intercede for them and save them to the uttermost. Thank you for that assurance and confidence this morning. In Jesus' name that we pray. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.